Throughout this season of Lent, we are uh, making our way through a sermon series on the probing questions that Jesus asks throughout the Gospels. He asks many questions. It was his main way of teaching, but we're having a look at some of the most urgent and the most penetrating of his questions, and that series continues today. Throughout this week, as I was working on this sermon, I kept feeling like it might be just a little bit too dense. So to help mitigate that, there is a summary or an abstract of this sermon at the end of your bulletin, should you get lost. And also, I have uh, made sure the sermon is riddled with puns, so if you're listening carefully, you may come across some of those puns. Uh, These are also known as dad jokes, and as of four months ago, I'm eligible to make dad jokes. So hopefully that will help uh, keep things interesting. The sermon text today is Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 through 23, and I invite you now once again to listen for God's word to you. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. For you are not for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, you've really got a feel for Peter in this passage, don't you? I mean, one minute. Jesus poses to him a high-stakes question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers it with flying colors. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He aces the test, and Peter commends him for it. Blessed are you, Jesus says. On this rock I will build my church. The name Peter means rock. But then... Jesus tells the disciples that the time has come for him to go to Jerusalem, where suffering and death await him. And Peter objects, and he says, This must never happen to you, Lord. And thereby he goes from the top of the class to a failing grade. 
Get behind me, Satan, Jesus says. You're a stumbling block to me. As Pastor Rob Wilson once put it, in his intro to Messianic Studies course, Peter gets an A on the midterm and an F on the final. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is two-pronged. There is the person of Jesus, and there is the work of Christ. The person of Jesus is his identity as the Son of God, and the work of Christ, his superhero name, his name Messiah, his office, the work of Christ is what he came to do. And in our text, Jesus declares that the work he came to do can only be accomplished through suffering, and that Jesus' person and work are inseparable. Peter understands only half of this two-pronged gospel at this moment in Matthew's narrative. He understands the person of Jesus, who he rightly declares to be the Christ, the Son of God, but he does not yet understand the second half of the gospel, the work of Christ, which comes through suffering and culminates in death. Peter would gain this understanding in due time. Though Jesus responds harshly here, it's tough to blame Peter. After all, the whole idea that the Christ, the Messiah, would do his work through suffering and death would have seemed like a contradiction in terms. That's not the way the Messiah is supposed to conduct business. Dr. Dale Bruner puts it like this, It will not be easy to adjust to the fact that when the great God speaks, he in effect stutters. Crucified Christ. Two words that at first collide in both logical and religious consciousness is a Christ who is not easy at first or even at length to grasp. At this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus hasn't been doing much direct teaching about himself. He's instead been focused on proclaiming the kingdom of God, which is his stated mission. And those who were following him were learning who he was by observing what he was doing. But as interest in Jesus grew throughout Galilee, Jesus decides to ask Peter to clarify who he believes Jesus is. After all, with great interest comes a great deal of variation in information. You know how rumors spread, right? And the more riled up people get about something, the less disciplined they seem to be in upholding perfect accuracy about that thing. And so Jesus asked Peter the big question, who do you say that I am? And Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, establishes for the first time what would also become the proclamation of the church through the centuries. And Jesus replies, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, by which he means on the rock of this confession, and so Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ inaugurates the very ministry that we as the church continue to this very day. Now, in our own day, in the Western world, there has been a decline in interest in the church. Fewer people go to church regularly. People know less and less about the Bible, and fewer people identify as Christian. However, there has not really been a corresponding decline in interest in Jesus. 
books purporting to offer a more accurate historical picture of Jesus of Nazareth gain a wide following. And it's quite common today for people to admire Jesus, to consider him as sort of wise philosopher or even life coach, to study him as a fascinating historical figure. Yet none of these outlooks on Jesus necessarily lead a person to worship or devotion. They do not ascribe him lordship or prompt discipleship. It wasn't always this way, of course. For about 1,500 years, the church more or less held a monopoly on information about Jesus. This was due at least in part to the church's worldly power and the ability to silence heresy and thereby suppress heterodox views of Christ. Worship and devotion were more culturally compulsory. Things began to change throughout the Renaissance and Reformation and Enlightenment periods. The rediscovery and study of ancient texts offered a deeper window into the biblical textual tradition and its original language, and scholarship began to migrate from the church to the academy. Protestants adopted a heavy suspicion of the teachings of the Roman church, a suspicion that was so fervent that it was difficult ever to put down. The birth of modern science brought widespread skepticism of miracles and exorcisms and the like, and the general public eventually grew weary of relentless religious wars and controversies. And so the cumulative effect of these changes was declining trust in and increasing skepticism of the Bible's portrayal of Christ and the church's teaching about him. In their so-called quest for the historical Jesus, academics began formulating their own ideas about who Jesus really was over and against who the church later recreated him to be. In the 1980s, the Jesus Seminar made frequent headlines in the United States because of their public skepticism that Jesus really said the things that are attributed to him in the red letters of the Bible. The seminar consisted of some 30 scholars who met twice a year and went line by line through the Gospels to vote on everything that was attributed to Jesus and whether or not he actually said it. If you voted with a red bead, it meant you thought that Jesus likely said this, pink meant maybe, gray meant probably not, and black meant there's no way Jesus actually said this. And in the end, the seminar decided that Jesus didn't really say much of anything the Bible attributes to him. For instance, in their treatment on the Sermon on the Mount, only six of the 109 verses received a red vote, meaning Jesus really said them. 31 were a pink maybe, which meant that 72 of the 109 verses were gray or black, and thus not originally from Jesus, but rather the early church. Mercifully, the Jesus Seminar has long since petered out, but scholastic and literary interest in Jesus remains strong today, apart from the church's proclamation of him as the Christ. Discoveries of ancient texts like the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Thomas depict Jesus as a sort of Gnostic teacher of secret wisdom and attach uh, the fascinations of many. They have promoted claims that the dominant church tradition unfairly sought to stamp out other legitimate 
traditions about Jesus in the third and fourth century. Recent books on Jesus have depicted him as a zealot revolutionary who wanted to overthrow Rome, or a stoic philosopher of self-denial, or an end times apocalyptic prophet, or a man who was in fact married. Such books never fail to receive acclaim over their widespread beguilement, however dubious their scholarship. And outside of the academy, Jesus often tops various lists of the most influential people in world history. In one recent list I scanned, Jesus came in third after Martin Luther King Jr. and Albert Einstein, and before Mahatma Gandhi and Arnold Schwarzenegger at number five. How nice. Do you see why Jesus' question to Peter is still so relevant and urgent to us as the church today? Just as many in Jesus' day were saying he was John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets, many in our day are saying that he was a philosopher or a revolutionary or a wisdom teacher. But what does John the Baptist have in common with Gnostics? What does Elijah have in common with zealot revolutionaries? None of them are the Christ, the son of the living God. And with all these other claims about Jesus floating around out there in the world today, the church must boldly proclaim him the Christ, the son of the living God, and call people not merely to interest in him, but to worship and discipleship. When Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter doesn't equivocate. He doesn't say something like, well, in my humble opinion, you're the Christ. He doesn't say, for me personally, you might be the Christ. No, he says, you are the Christ. It's a bold confession of faith in the midst of a world of skeptics. And it's the very manner in which the church must confess Christ today. Now, being bold is not the same thing as being careless or unthinking. To be sure, our confession of faith is somewhat more complicated today in our pluralistic world than it might have been in a world in which the church held more power and sway than even kings and emperors. But the proclamation of Jesus as the Christ need not be a tool of imperialism or colonialism in order to be effective. The proclamation of Jesus as the Christ need not silence different views or enforce a normative culture to which everyone must conform in order to be effective. The proclamation of Jesus as the Christ need not align itself with worldly authorities and insist on its place in the chambers of power in order to be effective. No, and in fact, the church has been rightly criticized for conducting itself in this way at certain points throughout history. And when it has, it has made the same mistake that Peter made. The so-called church militant also received an A on the midterm and an F on the final because it may have rightly proclaimed Jesus as the Christ, but it did not proclaim him as the crucified Christ. Its proclamation relied on human strength rather than the paradox of divine strength, crucified Christ. Like Peter, the church has sometimes made the mistake 
of separating the person and the work of Christ. But you see, the proclamation of Jesus as the crucified Christ speaks for itself and compels in a way that doesn't require human force or pressure. The proclamation of Jesus as the crucified Christ elicits for itself fascination and devotion. The proclamation of Jesus as the crucified Christ holds together the two-pronged gospel of Jesus' person and work. When Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, but then denies that he should go and suffer, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. For you are setting your minds not on divine things, but on human things. And in the same way, when the church proclaims Jesus as the Christ, but does not stand with those who suffer, and thereby enter into the sufferings of our crucified Savior, we fall into Peter's same trap, and in fact become a stumbling block to the gospel, with a mind fixed on human things. And there are plenty of churches who rightly proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah, but the integrity of that proclamation loses its strength when their ministries don't convey Christ crucified. These churches get an A on the midterm and an F on the final. And by the same token, there are plenty of churches who rightly stand with those who suffer and who work to alleviate the forces of death in the world, but fail to proclaim without equivocation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And those churches get an F on the midterm and an A on the final. And both churches ultimately come up short in answering Jesus' probing question, who do you say that I am? They both receive a C for the class, making them merely average. Jesus' question to Peter is his question to the church in every age. It is his question to us as Riverside Presbyterian Church. Who do we say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Do we proclaim him not only the Christ, but the crucified Christ? And are we willing to enter into and confront the suffering of the world as our crucified Savior did? We should continually assess the extent to which we are willing to stand with those who suffer for the sake of the proclamation of the gospel? Will we walk under the overpass to be present with those in need? Will we give ourselves away as freely as we build ourselves up? Will we stand against the causes of suffering in the world or stand by complicitly with a merely Gnostic, otherworldly message? Jesus' question, who do you say that I am, is one of those questions that prompts a bunch more questions. But that's okay, because just like Peter had more to learn, so also we as the church always have more to learn as well, as we continually reassess how we can faithfully echo Peter's confession of faith through the ages, that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God. And to him be all blessing and honor and glory and praise from this day forth and forevermore. Amen.